The Jewish views on Holocaust Memorial. We continue to remember as we hear another survivor's remarkable story. Author Lawrence Rees tells us why he spent 25 years researching his book on the Holocaust. And the 365 challenge that's helping raise awareness for post-traumatic stress disorder. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news stories from the past week, I'm Jason Rosam. Israel's envoy to the UK has commended Britain's International Development Secretary Prissy Patel for ensuring that money intended to help needy people really reaches needy people. Mark Regev made the comments during a speech at a Conservative Friends of Israel reception on Tuesday night. Ms Patel said that Brexit offered a new chapter for Britain and that in pursuit of life after leaving the European Union, Britain was going to need great allies such as Israel. A London university has launched an investigation after a Jewish academic was subject to a message that called for his dismissal and referred to him as a bitter Jew. David Hirsch, a lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths College, discovered the comments on a notice board asking students for suggestions on the future of teaching. A spokesperson for Goldsmiths, part of the University of London, said, We condemn this action. This is an unacceptable attack on a member of Goldsmiths' staff. They went on to say the university has zero tolerance to prejudice of any kind. Greater Manchester police are investigating reports of football fans singing anti-Semitic chants referring to gas chambers ahead of a fixture against Tottenham Hotspur. Among profanity, Manchester City fans were filmed singing You're getting gassed in the morning. Reports suggest the incident occurred on a tram travelling in the city centre just after 5pm on Saturday afternoon. At the time of this bulletin being recorded, both Manchester City and Greater Manchester Police had yet to comment. A dozen artworks commissioned for Holocaust Memorial Day are being unveiled across the country. The permanent artworks include sculptures, gardens, colleges and murals and will explore the theme of absence and the roots needed for new life after genocide. HMD Trust Chief Executive Olivia Marks-Waldman said she hopes that future generations will enjoy and learn lessons from the project. And finally, an eight-year-old boy has raised £50 for Syrian refugees by saving his sweets, then selling them to raise money. Eli Shah Abelez, a pupil at Saxe Marasha Primary School, was praised by the chief executive of World Jewish Relief, Paul Anticoni, who said it's people like Eli Shah who give him hope for the future. Eli Shah said he chose to help refugees because he wanted to show them that Jewish people care about all the people in the world. That's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sports. Thanks, Jason. Wickham Wanderers duo Scott Cashkit and Joe Jacobson are dreaming of causing the biggest FA Cup upset of the season so far when they take on Tottenham Hotspur at the weekend. The pair are also boyhood Spurs fans, with Cashkit, who's the club top scorer, telling Jewish News, I've dreamt about scoring the winning goal. Israeli interest at the Australian Open did continue well into the second week of action after Yishay Oliel reached the quarter-finals of the Junior Boys Tournament. The 17-year-old, who seeded fourth in the draw, also won a match in the doubles but was knocked out in the second round. And finally, next week's Super Bowl will pit together two Jewish owners when Robert Kraft's New England Patriots take on Arthur Blank's Atlanta Falcons at Houston's NRG Stadium in Texas. 
The final, taking place on the 5th of Feb, will see Kraft looking for a fifth title, while Blank's in search of his first. You can read the full interview with Wickham's two Jewish footballers and catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Now, what a treat I have in studio with me today, because I have not one, not two, but three people to review the news for you today. They are editor Richard Ferrer, features editor Fran Wolfish, and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you all. Richard, let's start off, shall we, with the front page. This is your first pay-per-view in about six weeks. Do you know that. Yeah, I know. I've been conspicuous by my absence. And now I've come along mob-handed with two of my most glamorous assistants on my shoulders. So it's nice to be back and nice to be talking to you. And of course, it's nice to be talking to you as well. Shall we start off with the front page headline that reads, hashtag we remember. This weekend, of course, we mark the 72nd anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz and Holocaust Memorial Day, which took place on Friday. It's very difficult, other than big landmark moments like the 70th anniversary of two years ago when the world remembered this this moment in time. How do you keep the memory alive? How do you keep the message fresh? And how do you keep that legacy intact in people's minds? Well, this year we have partnered with World Jewish Congress, who have taken the lead on an extraordinary campaign, a social media campaign. We've asked community leaders, people of note in the community and beyond across the world to tweet a picture of themselves holding up a sign saying I remember or we remember and we have wrapped around the front and the back page with dozens and dozens of people that our readers will recognise. Luciana Berger, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Chief Rabbi Brian Mervis, a host of MPs, political figures, people in the arts, people familiar beyond the Jewish community. So it's quite a striking an eye-catching collection of individuals that we've got all pledging to remember as we look back 72 years to the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And very, very poignant it is as well. As we turn inside the page now, sort of sticking to the theme of Holocaust Memorial, I believe, Jack, that you've been speaking to Mayor Sadiq Khan. Yes, this week I interviewed Sadiq Khan at City Hall and he spoke to me about the response to a series of anti-Semitic attacks in North London. And he gave a lot of sympathy to the Jewish community, saying that there would be extra patrols in North London and that there would be a ripple effect that the Jewish community feels when there are attacks like this. It's crucial with a zero-tolerance attitude towards hate crime because, you know, when there is an anti-Semitic incident, it's not simply the person who's the victim who's affected and their family and their neighbours but the ripples of trauma are felt by the entire Jewish community. We've got to understand that psychological trauma the Jewish community feels when there's an anti-Semitic incident. So Sadiq Khan is clearly being true to his consistent form, I'd say, which is one of empathy with the Jewish community. He certainly does seem to be, as it were, on our side. Surely that's got to come from him coming from minority background himself, wouldn't you have thought? Yes, I think he, he definitely identifies with being a victim, coming from a minority community. And I think a lot of people in the Jewish community have warmed to him. There's a lot of frustration with the Labour Party's relationship with the Jewish community, but he seems to be an exception to that rule. And was there anything that he gave away in terms of sort of his ongoing commitment to the Jewish community? He said that no incident is too trivial to report. He encouraged the Jewish community to report 
all incidents of anti-Semitism, no matter how small. And he also encouraged Jewish people to participate in a police review that's going to take place in the next year. So he, he really does want participation and he wants us to engage with him. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. And speaking of anti-Semitic incidents, I believe that the residents of Barnet have been subject to some not so nice incidents. Yes, it's really sad, isn't it, that in the week that we mark 72 years since the liberation of Auschwitz, that there should be a spate of anti-Semitic incidents, predominantly in Edgware and Mill Hill. I believe there were six incidents, actually. And it included a brick being thrown through a window, which had a swastika and anti-Semitic slurs scrawled onto it. There was also a swastika, which had been drawn into condensation on somebody's window. And it's, it's just, you know, those are just two examples. It's just really sad that the Jewish community is having to face anti-Semitic incidents from a minority, no doubt, but unfortunately that these incidents are occurring. It's of no surprise. Obviously, you pick up the Jewish news every week. And unfortunately, we convey this news week after week that these things do take place. At the end of every year, the Community Security Trust, the annual figures are released. And you, and you hear of the hundreds, if not thousand plus incidents. And they do spark concern and they do spark caution. But I don't think anything hits home quite like seeing the vision of a disgusting slurs graffitied onto a brick and all these things happening in such a short space of time in such a small area at the very very heart of the Jewish community now how would I feel and luckily I haven't actually ever had to encounter or even witness such a thing but if I saw these reprobates doing this or attacking my loved ones or my property how would I react how would I want the police to react and and it's very reassuring to know that the local authorities are on top of this they are taking this very very seriously and that hopefully even though it was a a spate it was half a dozen attacks in a short amount of time they appear to have died down and hopefully the police can bring to justice the perpetrators well we certainly live in hope that they will get their comeuppance well sadly continuing the theme of anti-semitism on the most grandest of scales the new film about the holocaust denial i believe fran that you have been speaking to deborah lipstadt the person who inspired the film absolutely deborah lipstadt is played by Rachel Weiss in the new film Denial, which hit UK cinemas on Friday to coincide with HMD. Deborah Lipstadt is an American academic who was taken to court over a libel case by historian David Irving. He suggested that she had libeled him in her book, Denying the Holocaust. She basically called him a liar and a falsifier of history. What was interesting about this case, which took place in 2000 was that it was proven that he was a liar and that he had falsified facts about the holocaust he tried to argue that the jews were not murdered at auschwitz by gassing and deborah lipstadt obviously took him to task over that the film is absolutely thrilling it's real sort of edge of your seat stuff so it's worth going to see and it's set in a courtroom isn't it it is it is a courtroom drama there are many scenes outside the courtroom so don't feel that you're going to be confined within that courtroom for the whole two hours it's also a very moving film and it really shows you how in this day and age that there are Holocaust deniers. There are people who honestly believe that the Holocaust did not happen. They question just how many Jews were killed or indeed if they were killed or if Hitler even knew about the plans to kill 
the Jews. So the fact that Deborah Lipstadt was able to win this landmark court case really you know, signified a massive victory, not just for the Jewish community, but for history itself. It does seem quite extraordinary that anyone, despite all of the education that is out there and the mandatory education even in schools as well, would even be in a position to deny such horrors existed. Now, I believe that celebs have been spotted in Edgware, apart from the likes of you, of course, Richard. Well, actually, there's a, there's a nice segue here, Phil. <laughs> yes, apart from Richard. Rachel Weiss was actually spotted in Edgware this week, of all places, with Rachel McAdams. Can we just say no offence to the people of Edgware when you say of all places? But anyway. Well, I grew up in Edgware, Phil. It's a place close to my heart. But yes, the two Rachels are filming Disobedience, which is it's based on the debut novel by Naomi Alderman. And for those of you who don't know what it's about, it deals with forbidden love specifically lesbian love within the orthodox jewish community so it's a little bit controversial but we're certainly looking forward to the film coming out later in the year we certainly do thank you all very much indeed that's where we're going to have to leave it for the pay-per-view for this week but don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the jewish news every thursday across london or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk Now, you'll remember last week we heard the story of Bernd Koshland, a Holocaust survivor who came to the UK on the kinder transport. In this week, where we remember the Holocaust as a nation, we thought that we'd hear from one more survivor's story. Gina Turgel was sent to Bergen-Belsen and miraculously lived to tell her extraordinary tale, as she does now in her own words. I lived a very happy life. We were a very happy family. My brothers and sisters, we were nine children, uh, five brothers and four sisters. My older brothers um, were too married, and the others were studying. Unfortunately, war broke out, and as the Germans were very well prepared when they entered Poland with a list of most affluent Jewish families, and the monster was our, our name. It was several days passed, and a group of Nazis entered our home, and they demanded they want to speak to my mother. And they said, you've got a very nice home here, but you won't be needed for very long. We command you by tomorrow, 12 o'clock. You have to deliver all the things we see here. If not, one of your sons going to get shot. Universities, colleges, everything closed, the war requisitioned everything and everything was just standstill and they pointed at him he was a student of dentistry and my mother says please by all means whatever you see here we will deliver as you command off they went it was difficult you see cars lorries vans everything was requisitioned and how to obtain, how on earth we'd be able to deliver all the things, with the exception of the contents of our home. My mother was very clever, and she walked out several kilometers outside Krakow, where I come from, to a farmer, and she borrowed a horse with a wagon. We throwed our things on Several times we were walking backwards and forwards. The last one, my mother broke down. 
she cried. Why? Whatever she worked for, whatever she saved, or everything was gone. But I must have later months and years, we learned that all those possessions, which one possessed, had no meaning. The starvation, the fear, the torture, the segregations, the shooting was horrendous. People were dragged out from their homes in the middle of the night and shot then there. Some of them to the street, to courtyard, for no reason. People were taken to the woods, old people, children, never seen them again. All those atrocities one can't forget. Eventually there were huge posters everywhere. The Jews who live outside the ghetto, the ghetto is free for them, and they have to come into the ghetto. If they find Jewish people living outside ghetto, they will be shot. Why the ghetto was free? Because those people who were there previously, or they've been shot, or they've been sent to various other concentration camps. That's why it was empty. My brother was married, and he was he had a child, and his wife lived across the road from us. You know, the ghetto was so small. As we approached uh, the panel, I get very emotional about it, she was told to go to the rights with my nephew. And my mother, my sisters, and myself to the left. And we were shouted by the Nazis. Quick, quick march out. There were hundreds of women in front of us. So I turned around and I looked there. And I've seen so many women and children. And I felt this is something wrong. So I waved to my sister and my nephew to run towards me, whether I could save him for a week or, or months or whatever. Even a day. Another thing, but somehow spontaneous, I wanted to, to help. And he did run towards me. And I just about to hide him behind my back. Two Nazis rushed down. And they grabbed him and they threw him to his mother. And they said, he must go with his mother. And that was the first transport to Auschwitz, straight to the guest chamber. The scene, scene I never, never forget. But it looked like it's impossible how much I would like to portray. It is impossible for anyone to comprehend. And then eventually this, uh, you know, when they were saying they're going to create a concentration camp, and um, it will be built on a Jewish cemetery. So, of course, the tombs don't have to be put away. So they used to take about 300 men from the ghetto in order to chop the tombstones and half of them returned back in the evenings. Went on for several months. Eventually the, the camp was ready and we were about to leave the ghetto. We entered to that concentration camp, Plachow, which maybe you've seen Schindler's List, 
is portrayed in that camp. Huge barracks, so many to one barrack. We found a place, my sisters, my mother and friends round. At five o'clock in the morning we had to stand to attention to be counted in case someone has escaped. And then we had to march out to that huge square, larger than a football pitch. Men separate and, and women separate. And waited for Commander Gerd to appear, walked like an elephant, a whip in one hand and a gun in another, accompanied by station dogs, Ukraine guards and SS. Walked over to our side, several lashes across our faces, and then walked over to the men's side, said, you haven't shaved today, shot them down. You look stupid. You look, you shaved today. You look too clever. He could have shot 50 to 70 men in the morning. And that occurred very, very often. We, um, it was Belson concentration camp. We arrived after a long, long few years. And, um, my eyes did not believe what I see. This side one could ne I could never imagine that I ever seen. Walking skeletons, heaps of bodies lying everywhere. You could not distinguish they were men or women. We found a corner in a barrack, which the barrack had no windows. There were openings for windows, but no glass in them. We fall asleep, so many hundreds of us in one barrack. And I woke up early hours of the morning and I looked out and I just couldn't believe my eyes. And um, I heard noise and suddenly I lift up my eyes and I see tanks passing by. I couldn't distinguish which nationality they were. I thought they must have requisitioned and brought them into the camp. The gates opened and voice came through, loudspeakers. We British, we came to liberate you. The Nazis, they've got nothing more to say to you. Be happy. And of course, tears of joy poured down my cheeks. I had to wipe them away because if the Nazis saw you, you could have been shot. A little while later, shall we say about half an hour later, voice came through the loudspeakers. All Germans, guards, and every Nazi have to assemble outside that building, which they used as a headquarter. And then they were arrested, and then I felt free. And for about two weeks later, Norman comes in with a message, and he says, I put a message for my commander officer to invite you for dinner for the officer's mess. And I thought, I was so shocked. I thought, myself, God knows what they're going to do with me there. So I asked my mother, and thank God she did, I did save her. We arrived at that building, that officer's mess. No one opened the door, and I stepped back. And no one says, what's the matter? So I said, look, you must be expecting special visitors. What am I doing here? He says, you are the special visitor. This is our engagement party. I said, pardon? I thought, maybe under influence of drinks. 
but we just arrived, so he couldn't have drunk yet. As we walk in, this commander officer comes over, offers me a glass of wine. Congratulations, congratulations. But you see, Norman made up his mind when he first saw me in hospital that this is the girl who I'm going to marry. Never mind me what I thought, but he made up his mind. My very first step was Hendon, northwest for where my in-laws lived, and I adopted three ambitions to adopt a way of British life, to learn the English language, and to write about my memoirs in case I forget. But how can I forget? So I've written that book for the people who haven't got a clue what went on. And for younger generations and generations to come, should never, never allow it to happen again. And should never, never experience what I have experienced. Thank you. The amazing Gina Turgle telling us how she survived the Holocaust and being sent to Bergen-Belsen. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and education coordinator at West London Synagogue, Jane Goff. They'll be discussing the attitude of Jewish people towards others. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to David and Melanie Baum about the 365 Challenge, raising awareness for post-traumatic stress disorder. But first, Lawrence Rees is an author who has spent longer than your average writer researching his new book, simply entitled The Holocaust. The book itself is anything but simple. It's taken him 25 years, meeting not just survivors, but perpetrators as well. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Lawrence to find out more about his book. Kate started by asking Lawrence to tell us where his interest in the Holocaust first began. For someone of my, my generation, the events of the Second World War were not really history. That's not because I was born during the Second World War. It's because my parents were involved in the Second World War. My father fought in the RAF. My mother grew up during the Second World War. And so it was never part of, it was never part of history like Genghis Khan is part of history. So that was always there. And then I always wanted, as long back as I can remember, I always wanted to make documentaries and I was inspired by a series called World at War that I saw as a teenager in the 70s, which was about the Second World War. I was always pretty clear what I wanted to do, which was to make historical documentaries if I could. And I then, after university, I managed to get into the BBC and I started to make historical documentaries. And then I started to meet former members of the Nazi party. And, and that was an extraordinary moment about 25 years ago because they didn't conform to the kind of stereotypes that I thought they would. And that really started me on the whole journey. How on earth did you get to meet former members of the Nazi party? I was making films. I made a film, for example, first film I made really was about the Second World War was in 1991. It was a film called The British Betrayal, which was about British Army in Austria at the end of the war and the events there. And I met a guy who was in the SS who had been involved in that. And he was... I mean, we researched him. I mean, this is you meet them because you, you use journalistic skills and you find these people and not just me, but you work with a production team. You have a long series of process of research before you do the, the actual film interview. But when I met him, he was incredibly charming and intelligent. 
not at all sort of some uh, frothy mouthed rabbit, yeah, bovine or you know, not not like the kind of thing you imagine. In fact, a very cultured guy. When I interviewed him, he was a senior figure with Audi cars in Germany. He didn't, you know, he seemed incredibly reasonable, and 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 so I expected him then to say that he thought that the events of the war had been terrible and what had happened was was awful and he was ashamed, but he wasn't at all. Gosh, that must he, be. He seemed to think that that at the time they'd done the right thing. That's so. There was this extraordinary contrast between be, between this person who was charming and nice and. And the reality of the history. And that really started me off because he wasn't alone like that. I then met a lot more former members of the Nazi party who were, were not dissimilar to that. I want to talk about your new book, The Holocaust. This isn't the first book that you've written. You've written books before. You've what, what, What's more is there to say? What's new? Well, for me, there's a huge amount that's new because the reason I've stuck with this for 25 years is you don't get to the bottom of it. I haven't got to the bottom of it completely yet. I'm a long way down digging the hole to the bottom of it, but I'm not at the bottom of it. And that's because you're trying to understand mentalities of the most horrendous crime in, in history. And it's not a easy and simple and straightforward task, not just because of that fact, but because of the way the regime was set up. So what's new in this book, primarily, the first thing that's new is the testimony, which is I've been lucky over 25 years to meet hundreds of people who were involved in this, survivors and perpetrators, and only a fraction of the testimony that, that I and the teams who work with me have gathered over the years have been published. So I wanted to see that published. I feel especially a, a responsibility to the material because so many of the people we talk to uh, are now dead. The vast majority, the majority certainly of the of the testimony in the book is completely is completely fresh and has never been published. And and this is an area where in journalists and, and TV producers add to history because it's primary resource material, especially since we were able to gather it because we were the, some of the first people into the former Soviet Union after the Berlin Wall fell and were able to interview people who'd never been able to talk freely about this before. Right, because I, I think there are quite a few people, I know Spielberg and, and others, but there've been quite a, quite a big push to get first-hand testimony given that, as you say, all the survivors and those who are first-hand witnesses are... Yeah, the difference, the difference there really is there's two things really. One is we acted as journalists in the sense that we had a, a, a very clear idea about the use we wished to make of the testimony. We weren't interested in just interviewing people at length about their, their biography for the record, as it were. We were, I think, a bit more focused in that sense. But secondly, the big difference is that my particular interest was perpetrators. And that's something that a lot of these archives of oral history really haven't been able to make much progress towards, I don't think. Did you work with organisations like Simon Wiesenthal and, and other centre the centre? Uh, we worked with a huge range of, of, of organisations over the years, but primarily this was original journalism. Particularly, there's a, we had a whole team of German researchers, a brilliant researcher called Frank Stucker, who's also an academic, who unfortunately died last year and was an absolute genius. And he was able over years to trace many former Nazis and then more extraordinarily also help us persuade them to go on camera, which, as you can imagine, was not an, an easy task. Gosh, no. And I suppose this this is your the, the uni unique selling point, if you like, of your book now is, is the testimony. Yeah, although, although I would say that, that I didn't want to write an oral history in that actually what interests me 
is trying to understand how and why this was possible. So therefore, you can't do that just with oral history. What you've also got to use is the conventional tools of, a, of the historian. You've got to go into libraries. You've got to study in archives. You've got to use documents of the time and speeches and so on. And so what I tried to do is to take that, the, the very powerful first-hand testimony, and weave it into a history that has all these other elements too. Without trying to reduce this extraordinary amount of work that you've done to, to sort of sound bites, if you like, what, what themes did you feel came out of the research and that are in the book? Are there sort of common threads of, that, well, if you like, that, that led up to it or that you found in these, um, in these perpetrators? Well, certainly in the, in the perpetrators, yes, which is that they, many of them absolutely believed they were doing the right thing. And they believed they were doing the right thing for a whole host of reasons that I go into in the book. And that made them very different, for example, from work I've done on the Hitler-Stalin war when I, we went off and we interviewed former members of the NKVD, Stalin's secret police. And when you talk to them, or the, this one chap I remember who was involved in the appalling deportations of whole ethnic groups within the Soviet Union, where many, many, many died. And you ask him why he did it. And he said, well, if I didn't do it, I'd be shot. He said what I always imagined the Nazis would say, which is I was acting under orders. You know, I mean, yeah. the, but, but actually, generally speaking, the Nazis who we came across over all this time didn't, didn't say that. So there was an internalization of belief that is really, really extraordinary. And you mean almost really like, um, like a hypnotic study. belief? That no, it's act- not hypnotic. It's not, I mean, I did, I did a special study of, of Hitler's leadership in a, a TV series and a book I wrote called The Charisma, The Dark Charisma of Adolf Hitler. And charismatic leadership, which is what you're dealing with here, isn't about hypnotizing. The, in that the peop- these people are, know what they're doing. They're completely rational, they're completely responsible for what they're doing. They just believe it's the right thing to do. And that belief is is magnetic. It sort of draws other people to believe it. They like believe a- it because they, they believe it because they think it's right. They believe it because they've been told that the Jews were the reason not just for the loss of the First World War, but the Jews are secretly plotting with international conspiracies to undermine Germany, that they are dangerous, incredibly dangerous, that they are behind the horrors of communism and the evils of capitalism, that they go into any situation they can to make a profit. They have no fundamental beliefs. They are so fundamentally dangerous, you cannot imagine how dangerous they are. They believe that. I mean, it's a fantasy, of course, but they believe it. Yeah. Is there anything that you that you think that the second, the third generations should specifically be taking out now, taking away? I mean, it's very difficult for for, for young people, particularly who aren't as aware of what was going on. But but given that given that it is Holocaust week, is there anything you'd like to advise the younger generation, particularly that they should be? Well, reading? I gave I gave Merlin Reese Memorial Lecture for the Holocaust Educational Trust earlier this week, and what I tried to do in that was to draw out a series of, of insights in the history that, that actually I think are of value today. I don't think history's got lessons. I mean, there's only one lesson in history, which is things change. The, nothing repeats exactly. It can't. So there's no, there's no formal lesson in history. But the series I made 20 years ago about the Nazis, I subtitled Warning from History. And I think there are elements of this that are warnings that you can take. One of them, for example, is two statistics. In 1928, the Nazis got 2.6% of the vote, and many people thought they were a joke. Hitler had been leader for seven years by that point. 1932, just four years later, they get 37% of the vote. They're the biggest party in Germany. And a few months later, Hitler's chancellor. That's how quick a fringe party that people, many people think are on the lunatic fringe can turn around and get power. 
So that's something absolutely to remember and to and to bear in mind. So this overall idea that actually many of the institutions around us, many of the things that we believe are way more fragile potentially than we think is something that you get throughout the whole of this history. Author Lawrence Rees talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about his new book, The Holocaust. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. A reminder, we live stream our schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it does mean that you can comment along as and when the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviewsuk. Now, post-traumatic stress disorder is always attributed to those who serve in the armed forces. But of course, it can affect everyone, including Holocaust survivors. David Baum from Hertfordshire has started what appears to be turning into a new social media phenomenon called the 365 Challenge. Its purpose is to raise awareness of PTSD by getting people to challenge themselves for a whole year. Community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out more for us by speaking to David and his wife, Melanie, who's just started the challenge herself. Diana started by asking David to tell us how the whole idea started. It came out of last year, a thing went around the world, a semi-viral thing, to to recognise the fact that 22 ex-service men and women committed suicide every day due to the effects of post-traumatic stress. And the campaign was you were supposed to do 22 press-ups for 22 days. And I'm doing it. And then I started calculating that 22 a day equals some 8,030 men and women a year. And you think, whoa, 22 days is not enough. I'm going to keep going. And then I suddenly thought about me having been bullied at school and the fact when Melanie had cancer, I had to have counselling. And every time I saw the bully up to that point, I'd see these bullies in the street. It would send a cold shiver down my spine. There was a connection then? There was a connection. There was this connection with these bullies that scared, which literally turned me into a quivering mass. And I'd walk away. And then when I had counselling, it seemed to take that away from me. Then I thought back about... You know, if you go back as far in our own history, the Judaism, the camps, the people that came out of the camps, some people were very stoic and just got on with it. My great, my great, great grandmother, my great uncles, they just got on with it. Yet other people really couldn't cope or something would suddenly trigger a memory. I'm very honoured people are taking up the challenge. And there's a man in America, Willard, he said he took it up. And I said, why? I'm very grateful. And he said his seven-year-old son died of cancer, you don't have to be in the armed service to get post-traumatic stress disorder. Right, it's right across all genders, all ages, everybody. Tell me then exactly how does 365 Challenge work? (laughs) It's got some different steps in it, I I read. Okay, the 22 was you did 22 press-ups, but I get bored and the thought of doing 22 press-ups for a whole year was never going to work for me. I don't think it would work for anybody else. So we set up this whole idea was the first 100 days, it'll be 22 reps of any 
exercise. What's a rep? It's a repetition of the exercise. Oh, I see. So if you wanted to put a box, put a chair on the, t- on the floor and walk around that 22 times, that's 22. Right. Melanie is, is doing 22 hula hoop revolutions tonight. Mm-hmm. It's just doing something. Real hula hoop. I've got a, a weighted hula hoop that I use. My goodness, I haven't seen those since I was a girl. I They're fantastic. I can't do it. I've got no coordination. Unfortunately, I suffer from the normal middle-aged Jewish man syndrome. No coordination whatsoever. <laughs> but how does exercise, as exercise, actually alleviate post-traumatic stress disorder? It, I don't quite follow the it connection. Releases, what happens, it releases endorphins that alleviate, makes you feel good. But the actual challenge will not ease post-traumatic. What it does is draw attention to the fact that people are suffering and they must be helped if you know that and part of that is we're putting people in touch with the samaritans why minds are important we have counselors who said look i will help people if we if they want to get in touch with us jewish care i'm sure would be happy to be involved it's about pointing people in the direction so all the challenges make people aware and does that resonate with you as well, Melanie? How much involvement have you got in all of this, apart from your hula hoop exercises? Well, as I say, I've just started the challenge. I'm on day seven. I just decided I was inspired. And the fact that there's people that we don't even know that have taken it up, I thought, well, I've got to do it. If nothing else, just support David. Why not me? Absolutely. Would do wonders for your waist as well, I suspect, as well. (laughs) Well, one one hopes. (laughs) One hopes. One lives in hope, absolutely. With the challenge, because it's 365 days, what I said was, when you got to day 100, you then make the jump from 22 repetitions to 30. Right. When you get to 200 days, day 200, it's 40 reps. And when you get to day 300... It's 50 reps for the final 65 days. And there are times when I can't do it. It might be a shovel. I just haven't got the energy to do it. And someone said, oh, you're supposed to be doing every day. And I said, no, that's then become stressful. Yes, indeed. You have three, you, you have to take two, 365 sessions. You don't have to do them every single day. But what you have to do is every time you complete, you film yourself doing it. And ah. you, you then post that on social network so that people see what you're doing. Right. That brings me on to my next question. How do people start? Ultimately, if all they want to do is take up the challenge, as long as they, when they do it, say, I am doing the 365 challenge in association with MIND to raise awareness of post-traumatic stress disorder, that's it. No one pays any money. I'm not, this is not about raising cash because how many times are we supposed to put money, our hands in our pockets for a collection tin that has no feeling? That's right. If someone is prepared to give up a minute a day, two minutes a day to just do this every day, that's, that's a commitment and that is far worth far more to me as a person than any money in a tin. David and Melanie Baum talking to Diana Toman there about the 365 Challenge designed to raise awareness for post-traumatic stress disorder. For more information, then go to the365challenge.org.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. 
Joining Adam Bradley and me today is journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and education coordinator at West London Synagogue, Jane Goff. And the subject today is based on an item we heard in the news with Jason a little earlier on. An eight-year-old boy has raised £50 for Syrian refugees by saving his sweets, then selling them to raise money. When asked why he did, he said he wanted to show that Jewish people care about all the people in the world. The question is simply, do Jewish people care about all the people in the world, and do we do enough to show we do? Jeremy, let's start with you. As a people, are we too insular? We're often accused of being very insular and only caring about Jewish concerns or about Israel. And really, I think if one looks at the the historical side of this, it's just completely untrue. If one looks, for example, at movements that have nothing really to do with Jews, the civil rights movement, the anti-apartheid movement, the feminist movement, not causes that are centred, if you like, on Jewish issues, what you'll find is that Jews are actually very much in the forefront of leading those campaigns, of supporting those campaigns, of financing those campaigns. You can guarantee that Jews will be um, very much at the forefront of supporting that particular campaign or issue and now of course i'm not saying that all jews will always be thinking about other groups or will always be at the forefront of justice campaigns etc there are plenty of jews who will be very insular and who will focus mainly on their fellow jews or in israel that's understandable and indeed they should focus on their own community but i think the idea that we are insular too insular and that we don't care about other communities is a complete myth. And in fact, the Syrian example is just a Mm. case in point. I think, actually, that there's a famous Jewish charity which only gives money to non-Jewish things that are wanted. You could well be right, Clive. There are plenty of Jewish charities that I don't know whether they exclusively work for non-Jewish charities or non-Jewish people that need their help. But certainly look at someone like World Jewish Relief. And that very often, as Jeremy said, whenever there's a disaster or something needs sorting straight away, normally the first people there, World Jewish Relief and the Israeli army, setting Mm. up hospitals. Take, for example, Haiti, when they had the problems out there. The first people out there were the Israelis Mm. setting up the only people that set up a marquee, a hospital, and treated people immediately. Mm. We're talking internationally and about charities, but... Jewish people on the whole perhaps do not think beyond their own little important things. Is that not the case? From my experience, having a reform influence, I find that it's remarkable the amount of outside work that people do and the way they think about outside situations and how they, they're so sort of open and willing. And my synagogue, for example, is amazing. It has drop-in centres. It has overnight shelter during the winter months. It's always running off to do this campaign and that campaign. And I'm so impressed by it because for me at the bottom of it is the notion of justice and mercy. To say I don't know whether they do it, you know, individually all the time, but it certainly impresses me. And I feel very touched by the amount of work that they do. And as you said about they're normally the first ones in any trouble Scott, building, offering medical help, it's not seen, though. I think it seems to me that people don't... Either they don't want to recognise it or they don't actually see that that's what happens. I think some people might have set few of Jews only look after Jews. 
But it, I don't find it the case. Yeah, I think that, that, Clive, I think Jane's hit the nail on the head with your question that you asked, do Jews do things for other, other people that aren't Jewish? Yes, we do. Do we get recognised for it? No, we don't. All right, but how do we make this more obvious that we do care about everybody else? But, you know, Clive, you say, how do we make it more obvious? There's an, that's begging the question that you should make it obvious. There is, of course, the Jewish precept that the highest form of charity is where it's anonymous, mm. where you're yeah. actually not in any way making it visible or knowledgeable to other people that you're giving to charity. So I would say it really begs that, begs that question, mm. whether it's morally right that you don't do things, as it were, anonymously, as opposed to where you're shouting out to everybody that has ears mm. that we are a Jewish organisation, we're benefiting others. I mean, I would argue that actually there is a, a sense of nobility in, in yeah. doing things without getting due reward. Oh, indeed. There was a very, very famous Jewish philanthropist who gave money to everything, but his name had to be written across everything mm. in big mm. golden letters, <laughs> yes. And I suppose that's wrong, is it? I think Jeremy's right. I, don't, I think sometimes that you... Do we need to prove to people that we are magnanimous, that we do give, that we are not just centred on being Jewish, that we actually are open to all that's going on in our universe? Do we need to actually apologise or be apologists for that and say, well, actually, we did this, and you can't say that because we did this? I mean, I think you're right. There's something quite honourable about just getting on with the job and... Mm. You know, because there's so much flack. I mean, you can't do right for doing right anyway. Yeah. So, and I know I always feel better if I do something and keep my mouth shut about it. Yeah, you know? yeah <laughs> so, it's true. And you I'm don't sure that come works. Across that yeah, way. Jane, you're you're in this fortunate position that the rest of us are not in. That you have seen Judaism from different angles during your conversion in your learning. How much emphasis was put on? looking outside of Judaism and, and, and how we relate to the outside world. Was that even considered? Oh, I think it was, yeah, very much so, because you're, you know, you're not alone self. I think the conversion programme I went through fitted us in with all that's gone on in the universe. Obviously, there's particular yeah. histories that you have to be alone with that. No, I felt very much part of a global a global person. I felt like a global person. Judaism is global yeah. and that what we do is just exceptional yeah. <laughs> in a yeah. sense, you know. And I think for me, what it keeps coming back to is this whole idea of Sadaka. I was brought up as a Christian with charity, you know, you do the charitable thing. But this to me is much more important. It's much more about justice and mercy. It's much more about loss of self. I think that's a, a wonderful thing that is part of Judaism for me and one of mm. the strongest attractions. There is mm. something very special. Am I being fanciful? No, no that makes a great deal of sense. And I was just to add to that, I mean, it, that is all exemplified in what Israel does, often under the radar. So obviously Adam's already yeah. talked about Israel setting up a field hospital in Haiti and doing so before anybody mm. else. And th that's true. In addition to that, Israeli technology, for example, in terms of irrigation, drip irrigation, uh, water technology has been exported to countries across the developing mm. world mm. and it has benefited millions upon millions mm. of people across the world. Now again, these people aren't Jewish and they're, they're not, I don't think the technology is being given in expectation of some kind of reward. Mm. Th mm. This is, in my opinion, Jewish values in action. Mm. I think one of the most amazing things about Israel, and it does, as you've said, do many things internationally, many very important things in medicine and all sorts of things, but one of the most amazing things, in my opinion, is that there are a great number of Syrian refugees now living in Israel, which is nobody knows about. 
but the Israelis are taking these Syrians in. And I think that's absolutely amazing. Mm. I mean, World yeah. Jewish Relief supported the Syrians, and mm. I, I was reading on their website, World Jewish Relief. I don't want to go on about them, but they are a shining light when talking about this. They supported 68,000 people across 20 countries globally. You know, that, that's it's not amazing. insular. No, <laughs> that is no. Jews going out to the world, doing what they can. Now, religious Jews perhaps will say that the whole purpose of why we're here is ticking a lot. And ultimately, it doesn't say to fix the Jewish world. And this is why we go out there. This is why Israel's out in Haiti, out in Syria. This is why we do this, because it's ingrained in us to help and fix and make things better. Very much what you've just said, I would like to ask you a question because I don't know the answer to this at all. And maybe you, Adam, do know. Do the ultra-Orthodox feel that way? Or is, is Tikkun Olam for them just Jewish? couldn't speak for them because I'd imagine there are different variations within the Haredim themselves. Yeah. But I would have to go back to the statement I made that it's it's fixing the world. Mm-hmm. It's not fixing the Jewish world. And and for the, all the time and, and effort that they spend studying Torah, if they haven't picked up on that yet, <laughs> there's something seriously <laughs> yeah. wrong. So I can only imagine that they must believe yeah. that. They must. I, I love that notion of repairing the world. I think mm-hmm. it's just... Mm-hmm. It's, it's very soulful and it, you can't ignore it or it's almost, a, I find it a duty in yeah. a way, but not a duty such as you do this or, you know, kind of like a soulful obligation. Really. And I like the way that Tikkun Alam doesn't have strict structure. Yeah. It's no. you fix what you see, when yeah. you see it, how you see fit. It gives you that autonomy to, to do it yourself, to you make the decisions. You go and find out what's wrong yes. out there and, yeah. and sort it out. Well, there we are. We all seem to be agreed about this, and uh, I'm, I'm glad about that. So thank you all very much indeed. My thanks to our guest, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi, and education coordinator at West London Synagogue, Jane Goff. And it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi James Barton from Shari Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue. For quite a while now, I have been thinking about comfort, or maybe consolation is a better word, or solace. At any rate, they are all covered by the Hebrew word nechama. People are in acute need of what is communicated by these terms. It's different from pursuing peace or promoting justice or seeking happiness. Those are all good things which, as it were, can stand alone. We want them and we need them for what they are in and of themselves. But the idea of consolation always contains a reference to something it addresses, suffering, grief, bitterness, misery, dismay, consternation, they are all very real, and perhaps right now in particular. The general verdict on last year, as we took leave of it a few weeks ago, was negative, very negative. So many people, looking back on the world in 2016, saw loss and upheaval. Meanwhile, for those of us involved in running and working for synagogue communities, this winter has been a winter of exceptional losses. Human mortality has seemed so tangible and ever-present. Thus, nechama, whether comfort or consolation or solace, is of the essence. 
Recently, I asked my own congregation, where do you find Nechama? The answers included listening to or making music, being with children, getting outdoors and appreciating nature, enjoying the company of animals, reading fiction or poetry, savoring the warmth of friendship and family life, and participating in the community rituals of Judaism. Those are the sorts of things that people will utter in an open congregational setting, and they are wonderful recommendations, true sources of goodness to turn to in bad times. And there are other things which people tell me about, perhaps in a more private one-to-one setting. Gardening, exercise, cooking, eating, sleep, sex, rest, silence. They are all, as we see, dimensions of normal everyday human life, right there, available in the world around us. Our routine human existence provides us with the means and opportunities to deal with, or to try to deal with, the griefs and pains and terrors it contains. Our Torah reading this week, Va'era, isn't explicitly about comfort. We're in Exodus. Moses begs Pharaoh for the freedom of his people. We are caught up in a deeply engrossing account of oppression and freedom. Suffering people are going to be liberated, and in very dramatic circumstances. Perhaps that narrative, too, may be a form of consolation, of nechama. I tend to think so. A final note. It may be a key component of everyday life, indeed, but nechama nevertheless so often arrives a little unexpectedly and from an unlikely quarter. We may not have been actively seeking comfort. Perhaps we feel locked in sadness, for instance. And yet, suddenly, it's there. The words of someone we hardly know, a long-forgotten piece of music, the adventure of falling in love, an unfamiliar book we pick up listlessly, a brilliant blue sky, a phone call. Not only are you comforted and consoled, but you experience some sort of learning, a discovery, a revelation. If you are in need of consolation or comfort, of nechama, then I wish it may come to you that way, just like that, unexpectedly, out of the blue, as a revelation. Thank you to Rabbi James Barden from Sharai Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue, with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Gina Turgel, Lawrence Rees, David and Melanie Baum. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Jeremy Havadi and Jane Goff. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.